Welcome back to the Hemingway List for Book 10, Chapter 38. Tolstoy tries to get into Napoleon's head, at first assigning him a modicum of, em- a modicum of empathy, and then stealing his character to that of a barbarous murderer. Uh, do you think Tolstoy was unfair in his characterization? What do we re- Sorry, we do receive some primary sources in terms of Napoleon's letters. Do you think Napoleon believed his own motivations for war, or were his letters a lie to the world and himself? Twisted Every Way says, Damn, imagine looking over a battlefield and seeing 50,000 dead people. That is crazy. Napoleon seems of two minds here. Sometimes he seems full of regret at what has happened. Other times he seems to delight in it. The fact that he focuses on the fact that the French army lost one-fifth of the army of the Russian army is a choice. Four lost souls in a bowl replied saying, Congratulations, your kills outnumber their kills. Your army is still more than decimated. Um, yeah, a bit of an empty victory when... What, what's it called when a victory that's like... Oh, there's a name for it. It's a really good word too. Uh, oh, man, someone has to remind me. There's a name for a victory that is so nearly a loss that another such victory would be the end of you, if that makes sense. Another victory of that nature would actually be, would devastate you. Uh, I can't think of the name of it. Pyrrhic, Pyrrhic victory. There we go. Pyrrhic victory. Let me see the actual definition of a Pyrrhic victory. A Pyrrhic victory is a victory of or success that comes at the expense of great losses or costs. <clears throat> is a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to a defeat. Great word. Um, and a great theme, isn't it? A great theme. I feel like you could unpack that theme in some kind of, or in a lot of different mediums. Writing, arts of different types, Pyrrhic victory. It's really cool. Um, anyway, what was I reading? Oh, yeah. Lost Souls in a Bowl. Uh, it's reminiscent, actually, of the opposite of that. Uh, is that a word? Premonicent of the Cold War arms race. The US and the USSR were so concerned about the missile gap, the idea that they could destroy the Earth 20 times over, while the other guys could destroy it 30 times over. It doesn't matter, you're all dead anyway. It was interesting, too, to see Napoleon actually shook, you know, actually shaken by what he was seeing. How many battles has he fought by this point? A lot. He's seen battlefields. He's seen, you know, he's seen battlefields full of dead people. But nothing like this. This actually got to him. And even though, you know, they won the fight, he doesn't feel like a victor. And it's the first time in his life for Napoleon, of all people, you know, pretty significant. All right, chapter, uh, what's this, XXXIX19 uh, is the final chapter in book 10. So here we go. Several tens of thousands of the slain lay in diverse postures and various uniforms on the fields, 
and meadows belonging to the Daviadov family and to the Crown Serfs. Those fields and meadows where, for hundreds of years, the peasants of Borodino, Gorky, Shevorodino and Semenovsk had reaped their harvests and pastured their cattle. At the dressing stations, the grass and earth were soaked with blood for a space of some three acres around. Crowds of men of various arms, wounded and unwounded, with frightened faces, dragged themselves back to Morshaisk from the one army and back to Voluvo for the other. Other crowds, exhausted and hungry, went forward, led by their officers. Others held their ground and continued to fire. Over the whole field, previously so gaily beautiful, with the glitter of bayonets and cloudlets of smoke in the morning sun, there now spread a mist of damp and smoke, and a strange acid smell of saltpetre and blood. Clouds gathered, and drops of rain began to fall on the dead and wounded, on the frightened, exhausted, and hesitating men, as if to say, Enough, men, enough! Cease, bethink yourselves, what are you doing? To the men of both sides alike, worn out by want of food and rest, it began equally to appear doubtful whether they should continue to slaughter one another, all the faces expressed hesitation, and the question arose in every soul, for what, for whom must I kill and be killed? You may go and kill whom you please, but I don't want to do so any more. By evening this thought had ripened in every soul. At any moment these men might have been seized with horror at what they were doing, and might have thrown up everything and run away anywhere. But though toward the end of the battle the men felt all the horror of what they were doing, though they would have been glad to leave off, some incomprehensible, mysterious power continued to control them, and they still brought up the charges, loaded, aimed, and applied the match, though only one artilleryman survived out of every three. And though they stumbled and panted with fatigue, perspiring, and stained with blood and powder, the cannonballs flew just as swiftly and cruelly from both sides, crushing human bodies, and that terrible work which was not done by the will of a man, but at the will of him who governs men and worlds, continued. Anyone looking at the disorganized rear of the Russian army would have said that if only the French made one more slight effort, it would disappear. And anyone looking at the rear of the French army would have said that the Russians need to only make one more slight effort, and the French would be destroyed. But neither the French nor the Russians made that effort, and the flame of battle burned slowly out. The Russians did not make that effort because they were not attacking the French. At the beginning of the battle, they stood blocking the way to Moscow, and they still did so at the end of the battle, as at the beginning. But even had the aim of the Russians been to drive the French from their positions, they could not have made this last effort, for all the Russian troops had been broken up. There was no part of the Russian army that had not suffered in the battle, and though still holding their positions, they had lost one half of their army. The French, with the memory of all their former victories during 15 years, with the assurance of Napoleon's invincibility, with the consciousness that they had captured part of the battlefield and had lost only a quarter of their men and still had their guards intact, 20,000 strong might easily have made that effort. 
The French who had attacked the Russian army in order to drive it from its position ought to have made that effort, for as long as the Russians continued to block the road to Moscow as before, the aim of the French had not been attained, and all their efforts and losses were in vain. But the French did not make sorry, but the French did not make that effort. Some historians say that Napoleon only need only have used his old guards, who were intact, and the battle would have been won. To speak of what would have happened had Napoleon sent his guards is like talking of what would happen if autumn became spring. It could not be. Napoleon did not give his guards, not because he did not want to, but because it could not be done. All the generals, officers and soldiers of the French army knew it could not be done because the flagging spirit of the troops would not permit it. It was not Napoleon alone who would experience that nightmare feeling of the mighty arm being stricken powerless, but all the generals and soldiers of his army, whether they take, whether had they had taken part in the battle or not, after all their experience of previous battles, when after one tenth of such efforts the army, the enemy, had fled, experienced a similar feeling of terror before an enemy who, after losing half his men, stood as threateningly at the end as at the beginning of the battle. The moral force of the attacking French army was exhausted, not that sort of victory which is defined by the capture of pieces of material fastened to sticks called standards and of the ground on which the troops had stood and were standing but a moral victory that convinces the enemy of the moral superiority of his opponent and of his own impotence was gained by the russians at borodino the french invaders like an infuriated animal that had its in its onslaught received a mortal wound felt that they were perishing, but could not stop, any more than the Russian army, weaker by one half, could help swerving. But impetus gained, by impetus gained, the French army was still able to roll forward to Moscow, but there, without further effort on the part of the Russians, it had to perish, bleeding from the mortal wound it had received at Borodino. The direct consequence of the Battle of Borodino was Napoleon's senseless flight from Moscow, his retreat along the old Smolensk road, the destruction of the invading army of 500,000 men and the downfall of Napoleonic France, on which, at Borodino for the first time, the hand of an opponent of stronger spirit had been laid. Alright, there we go. A Pyrrhic victory indeed. The, the French have pushed on to Moscow, or they will, as I sip my coffee, <clears throat> but, you know, the the wound is coming with them. All right, that's the end of book 10. See you tomorrow for book 11. <laughs> I don't have to think about that so hard. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening.